You are listening to the Rooted Ministry Podcast, a conversation advancing gospel-centered ministry to youth. For more information about Rooted, visit our website at www.rootedministry.com. Welcome to the Rooted Podcast. I'm Justin Pillsbury here with Brent Bounds. I'm the youth pastor at Cobble Park Presbyterian Church in Birmingham, Alabama. We're in Dallas, Texas now. Hometown, Fever. It is. It's great to be home. Great to be back. Always good to be back in Texas. Well, can you fill us in a little bit of kind of where you've been to where you are now, family? Sure. So I grew up in Texas, uh, so it's great to be back. I have not lived back in Texas, though, for almost 19 years now. So I grew up in Texas, uh, went to Wheaton College undergrad up in Chicago. Uh, After college, moved back to Texas and was just here for several years and actually went to Dallas Seminary. Got a master's in biblical counseling um, and biblical studies there. And then uh, in 1999, moved to New York City uh, for grad school. So I applied all around the country for grad school, and the two places I got in were both in New York City. (laughs) So I went to New York thinking I would be in New York for a few years, get my PhD, and leave, and met my wife there. And we got married and raising three boys now in New York. And if you'd asked me, 19 years ago, if I'd still be there and if I'd be married, raising a family there, I thought you were crazy. <laughs> but um, it's uh, it's been really great. And uh, New York is a wonderful place to raise a family. Uh, yeah, you don't uh, hear that a, all the time. It's a challenging place, but it is a fantastic place to raise a family. And uh, I now have three native New Yorkers in my immediate family, which is kind of crazy. <laughs> so that's where we are. We're in New York. That's fantastic. Yeah. Well, have you always had a desire to work with or kind of study the teenage mind? Or is that something that kind of fell into by accident. (laughs) Yeah, I grew up in a family of educators. So both my mom and dad were teachers. My dad was a college president. My mom was a fifth grade teacher for 30 years. And so I've always been fascinated by learning and how people learn and change. And then I took a developmental psychology class in college and undergrad. And that's really kind of what opened my eyes and passion and just like, this is fascinating. Like, how do we grow and change individuals? How God's created us to be in a process of growth and development throughout the course of our life. So uh, that's kind of really where it just, I was like, I want to spend my life understanding how people grow and change. And then as a psychologist, how do I come alongside people and helping them in the process of growth and change, um, whether it's individual, whether it's parents with their children, uh, whether it's couples in their marriage, um, there's development going on in all those situations. So um, yeah, that's just kind of what, what, started it for me of just like, this is so fascinating to me. And then you'd been, did you start off in the office setting and then step into the church after that? Or was it? No, I actually started um, when I was, as I was finishing graduate school, getting my doctorate, um, I started working at the Redeemer Presbyterian Church Counseling Center yeah. as a counselor. And so um, I was there for five years uh, on staff in the counseling center. And then I was asked to start a new ministry at Redeemer back in 2005 uh, called Family Ministry, and it was which now is, a lot of churches have those. But, uh-huh. Redeemer being a largely single church, we haven't had a lot of families, and now we do have a lot of families now. But um, it was basically how it was ministry trying to help families survive and thrive in the city. And so providing resources for their marriage, for their parenting, just to help families stay in the city and do really well there. So I was director of family ministries there for eight years um, and oversaw youth ministry and children's Uh ministry, kind of reported to me. So I was involved in youth and children's ministry you know, indirectly because I was, I was supervising the youth director and the children's director. And then about three years ago, as Redeemer has started to kind of 
moved from one large church to several congregations. Um, my job was centralized. And so, uh, as I started my congregations, I no longer had a centralized position. And I was kind of ready to go in a different direction. So I moved to full-time private practice, um, two and a half years ago. Uh, so that's why I do full-time, but I also still do some contract teaching for Redeemer. I, I teach the preparing for marriage class six times a year, Redeemer. And then we do, a, we do a course called marriage lab, which is for couples in their very first year of marriage. We meet once a month. Um, and I do a topic on marriage and then, um, we have this year, we have 24 newlywed couples, uh, and six mentor couples that meet with these couples and we meet once a month and do some mentoring. So we're in our fifth class year of that. So fifth year of doing marriage lab. So those two things I still, and we go to Redeemer, my wife's on staff. Yeah, uh-huh. So she's a children's director at Redeemer Lincoln Square. Um, so yeah, we're still very part of Redeemer and part of the community there. So man, it's such a great place to be. It is. It's it great. is man. It's great. Neat to see what the Lord has done there. Yeah. Well, as it relates to, to youth ministry, you know, if you got a youth minister coming in and saying, Hey, you know, how should I approach these junior high boys? Um, energy off the charts, concentration levels, not there. Mm. What are some things that would be helpful as I look to teach them in a small group setting or a large group setting? Um, any advice? Mm. Yeah. You know, I think what's been really exciting and freeing for me as a psychologist, but you also see this in like the, the educational system. I think our education in general has done a great job of looking at how and appreciating how do children learn and doing research on how are our brains and our emotional bodies wired to take in information at different places in our life. And as I started like thinking about that in my doing when I was doing my professional study, I started to think about, wow, I really think there's principles here that we can really be useful to our spiritual formation in understanding how God's created us as beings that are in constant process. And how do we learn how to appreciate that process and address that process and teach to the process, even in the church setting. And that means, you know, youth ministry with a sixth grade boy to youth ministry with a 10th grade girl, that's going to look really different, you know? And I know it's really, that can be overwhelming for some people in ministry because they think, how can I be all things to all people? You don't have to be, but I just think having an appreciation for an understanding of basic developmental principles and process, I think for people in youth ministry can be really freeing to feel like uh, that's why that concept doesn't land with that kid. And that's why this kid can take it in. And it's not just because this kid's being resistant and they might be, but uh-huh. being resistant, you know, it's really, there's some developmental things going on that if I understand that can really free me up to teach to that place and realize this is a layering process. This is, you know, it's not going to happen all at one time and that's okay. You know, And now one of the things, this might be slightly off topic, but like my son and his first grade class, they don't, they don't have a signed seat anymore. Mm -hmm. And like they have some areas where they sit on medicine balls. They have (laughs) some where they sit on the floor and they get to pick where they sit. Um, Does anything like that, how the room is set up or kind of the location, does any, can that feed into the junior high mind as well in regards to how they pick up on things? Absolutely. I, I think thinking through, I mean, we've come a long way in thinking through environments. I mean, we think about it in our office setting, you know, whether an open office concept or it's cubicles where there's, or there's glass where everyone can see or whatever (laughs) we think about, we think about this all the time, but we don't think about it all the time in church to say like, how are we create? Well, we do though. In corporate worship, there's a lot of thought around how do we create an environment of corporate worship, whether it's more traditional and everyone sits in pews and, or whether it's more experiential and there's like smoke and all that kind of, (laughs) you know, but I don't think we think about it a lot on, 
a youth ministry level of what's going to be, what's going to create an environment where our kids are going to learn the best and feel safe and comfortable and valued, but also challenged. And, yeah. And it doesn't mean we don't have boundaries. It doesn't mean we don't, you don't let me let just kids. Okay. I'm going to talk while you guys run around. <laughs> that doesn't work. You know, sometimes it would, but you know, I think there are still some rules and boundaries that are helpful, but I think it is okay to think about how do we structure an environment and a space even that, really encourages and gets at letting our kids learn in the best way they can. Yeah. yeah. And then you kind of mentioned it a moment ago is you got a sixth grade boy, 10th grade girl. Are there certain things, pieces of advice you'd give, Hey, when you're teaching that sixth grader and then that 12th grade guy and then that ninth grade girl, mm-hmm. are there different things you need to take into account as you approach that room? Yeah. I think first of all, if it's from it, boys and girls, they're very different. We all yeah. we know that. And I think a lot of times we think we've got to teach you know, exactly the same. And I think that, that boys and girls are really different. They learn differently. Um, there's a great book, uh, by Leonard Sachs called why gender matters. He's a psychiatrist. It just talks about like we are created differently, biologically differently. <laughs> and, um, the better we understand that and kind of, and the differences really is helpful and do that. So, but then also there's a huge difference from a sixth grader, even to an eighth grader, you know, um, I think I've, said this earlier today, I think, you know, a sixth grader is really a fifth grader with a couple months. True. And yet we think, oh, now they're sixth grade, they should be able to do this. And yet two months ago, they didn't do it. You know, but all of a sudden they hit sixth grade and we think, okay, now they're ready. Well, not really. They're probably a a fifth grader until like Christmas break. And then they start to be a sixth grader, you know, in January. But I think, well, all that, all that to say is I think just being mindful as a leader, a teacher, a volunteer of, the process of development and knowing like when we get these kids, they're at the beginning of certain stages of doing things. And so the cool thing is we get to walk along with them. If you're around for a while, the process and see all that, but to being patient, you know, with ourselves and with them to realize they're going to get something today and that's going to be it. And then we're going to say it again and they're going to hear it again next year, but they're going to hear it in a different way. Not because we even said it differently, but because they can take it in a different way. And then three years, we might say the exact same thing. And they're going to have this like, oh, that's what that meant. And it's not because we did it differently. Maybe we did, but I think it's because they are changing and hearing things in a different way that affects the, how they, how they can take that in and own it differently for themselves. You know? And then as you look at, you know, the, the brain development part, is it going to be similar to puberty in the sense of, some folks are going to hit a little bit earlier. Some yeah. are going to go through it faster. Some mm-hmm. is going to be a little bit longer. Yeah. And yeah. so it's yeah. just kind of a little bit of observe. Yeah. You can't just pinpoint, okay, hey, age 12, they're doing this. Age 13, it's this. You kind of have a broad spectrum. Yeah, I would say, I mean, first of all, adolescence, there is, it's the highest, other than fetal development and early, like, infancy, it's the highest period of brain development in a person's life, other than developing in the fetus, and developing in the womb. <laughs> Um, I mean, it's, the research Incredible. shows us that. And so you think about it, you know, you think about a, a newborn baby or a toddler and how it's just constant sensory taking in and how they're just, you're like their brains on overdrive. That's actually what's happening again in adolescence. It kind of, it kind of tapers out a little bit elementary school and kind of stables out. And then all of a sudden puberty hits and hormones kick in and it just jumps again, but it's the greatest period of gray matter development in our brain, which the gray matter is what actually like seals and holds in information for us to use long-term. It's the time of our life when that is one of the greatest periods of development ever. And so when these kids walk into your youth ministry room or wherever it is, 
there is a lot going on in their minds, <laughs> you know, in their bodies. Yeah. In their and so, and I, I would say generally, you know, for, I usually try to think of it each age group in like a two to three year span so that it gives the kids who are a little bit late to the game still in that spectrum. It gives the kids who like hit it really early and are like way ahead. But think about like, you know, look at a 12 year old group of kids and think of them as 10 and a half and 13 and a half range, because you're going to have kids who act like a 10 year old yeah. and you have kids who act like a 14 year old and they're 12 and they're all 12. You know? <laughs> so I, I think sometimes that can be really helpful as a leader when you're sitting with a group and kind of go, these are 12 year olds. They should do this. Well, yeah, but there's a range, that's right. you know, now when you were involved, kind of overseeing some of the youth ministry components at Redeemer, mm-hmm. would there be from that time, two or three things that, Hey, these are probably some of the, you know, the best nuggets I could give you in regards to, to youth ministry. And, mm-hmm. and as you think about, you know, that young mind. Yeah. You know, look, I, I think a lot of our churches and I love where we are and even like a place like rooted where it's, we talk about great content and there's such great content. And I would never, ever want to, you know, I would love to think that even in my work with individuals and couples that my content I give them in therapy is really good, but in actually reality is the relationship. Mm. And I always go back every time to relationship, 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 community, community, community. When I think about it as a kid growing up in the church and while I had great content and great times in the word with people, I remember my volunteer, Richard, who took me out in his, you know, 1990 Trans Am, like, <laughs> took me out for ice cream and just spent time with me and said, how's it going? How's school going? How do you, what are you thinking about God these days? How's your faith? You know, mm. that's actually what changed my life. You yeah. know, the content was amazing and not to say that <laughs> it had to be there, obviously, but I, I think, you know, what I've seen is just the power of the relationship of these ministers and volunteers mm. of just saying, I'm going to show up every week whether you like it or not, to love on you, to spend time with you, to be silly with you, to say, Hey, listen, chill out, whatever. I mean, I'm going to, I'm going to do that. I'm going to show up. I think sometimes ministry, youth ministry, volunteers and staff forget the impact that really has. And I think that is the impact. I think God uses relationship to change us. None of us, we don't change in a vacuum. We change in relationship. And I think that, you know, yes, give good context. Yes, give strong theology and gospel, all that. But do that in the context of relationship. That's the biggest thing I can I can say is, is life changing for people. And that is fantastic. That is yeah. That's the heart heartbeat of youth ministry right yeah. there. Yeah. I would completely concur with that. And uh, as you said in your seminar, uh, you know, kind of maybe going on a sidetrack here to ask a question that may seem a little a little different to mm-hmm. some, mm-hmm. but one that I think is really important. And you hit the nail on the head is for so long the evangelical church just we're not going to talk about sex or we're just going to tell you don't do it. Right. Um, how would you encourage parents to to see that as an opportunity to really see biblically what the Bible talks about sex and how that could really be a good thing for them yeah. in the teenage years? Yeah, it was really powerful in that seminar. I, I t- kind of took a brief survey and asked people in the group to raise their hands if at some point in their life a youth leader or a parent or a pastor had said something like, you're created by God to think about, desire, and want sex. And that's a great thing. I think maybe two people in that room of like 70 people. <laughs> yeah. their that's tragic to me because it I is. think, you know, sex, it's not, we didn't figure out sex behind God's back. It was his idea. It was, he created it. He gave it, he gave us this gift intended for marriage. But I think if we don't start early on with our kids affirming the fact that, especially around puberty, 
that's a big percentage of what they're thinking about, you know, especially <laughs> yeah. as they get older in adolescence. It's, you know, to think like, don't think about it. And yet that's what they're thinking about all the time. Well, I mean, they're thinking about it and then it's in front of them in more ways everywhere, than it's ever been everywhere. And I think I, I've, I tend the culture tends to say like, you know, don't have sex. Are you thinking about sex? Are you thinking about sex right now? Stop it. You know? And then, you know, two people get married and we say, go have a great time. Enjoy it. And I, I've literally had people in my office sit and kind of go, I can't get my mind to switch. I feel like I'm doing something wrong when they've done everything right. Oh yeah. And so I think it, it starts with the parents, I think of being able to look at our kids and this is hard. I mean, I've got a 10, eight and three year old. I even have to look at my kids as much as I don't want to and think, they are sexual, created by God to be at some point. They're not there yet. At some, my, my oldest is approaching. He's a tweeny right now. He's approaching that. To think about, God created them to think about desire and want sex. And if I don't see that as a good thing in them, it's going to affect how I talk to them about sex. Mm-hmm. It's going to affect how freely I am with uh, having questions about sex. Because if I, if I don't create a safe environment to talk about it, they're not going to talk to me about it. And I want them to talk to me about it more than anybody else. And it's also going to, you know, if we, if we don't affirm the goodness of sex, mm. then they're going to find something to be a cheap imitation of it, whether it's porn, whether it's sleeping around, whatever it is, because it is something that God has given them in a desire, they're going to find a way. And I think if we affirm the goodness of it, then to say this great thing, really great thing that you really want was also created for this context. Mm. And the reason why it's so important to wait for that is because it's so good. And if you don't affirm the goodness of it, then it's kind of like, well, then why am I waiting? If it's kind of like, oh, not that great. If it's not that whatever. And if you don't think it's a good thing, then why not? Go do this? <laughs> but if we say like, this is so good and so special that God created for this context in marriage, we're, we're selling it short. And so I just don't think, I think we're so scared to talk about it that we give a message to our kids, whether overtly or covertly that it's not a good thing. And that's just, it's just so wrong. Yeah, so far from the truth. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I appreciate that word. Yeah, sure. Well, the, the last question I have is obviously over the years of youth ministry, um, it's my 12th year is you see this need to be perfect mm-hmm. from our kids. Mm-hmm. And, and sometimes parents intentionally or unintentionally are perpetuating that, mm-hmm. but how would you encourage parents to, to lean into those failures? You know, when their kids disappoint them, when they do something that sometimes maybe surprises mm-hmm. them um, as a gospel opportunity. Yeah, yeah. I think first of all, it's it's acknowledging original sin in our own hearts as parents, mm-hmm. and we don't handle failure very well in ourselves and in general, and so. God has this amazing way of using our kids to show us our own stuff. It's funny how he does it's a that. remarkable mirror. It's a remarkable, yeah. <laughs> and I think it's first realizing, you know, really holding on the gospel to realize how much we need God's grace. Mm-hmm. And that's going to help us give it to our kids. I'll give it one of the lowest moments of my parenting. I've had plenty of them, <laughs> but my oldest was, was we were potty training him and he was like you know, two and a half, three years old. And he was like, well, I was well to use a try to delicate term. He was willfully constipated. And um, I just was trying to say like, buddy, if you'll just like go, you'll feel so much better. He was literally in pain. I remember one time sitting upstairs in the bathroom and I was like, just like push it out. Come on. Buddy. And I was sitting across from him on the toilet, like, you know, push it out, buddy, whatever. And finally he got so exasperated. Me. He just looked at me and just like yelled. And I like, looked around in the face and just was like, ah, and me and my great maturity 
looked right back at him and went, ah, right back at him. And in that moment, it literally was like time stopped. And he looked at me like, I can't believe you did that. And he just lost it and like just started bawling. And he's like, Daddy, I'm so sorry. I can't do it. I'm just scared. And of course, then I like lost it. And I, you know, pull him off the toilet. We're sitting on the floor of the bathroom, both of us sobbing. And I had to sit in front of my three-year-old kid and just say, I had to apologize and ask forgiveness to my three-year-old and just say, it was all about control. I felt like God was looking to be kind of going, really, Brent? <laughs> because it was about my own stuff. And it was about my own need for control and efficiency. <laughs> and I was playing with my three-year-old. And so I had to just sit and go, that was so not okay and ask for forgiveness. And so I think when we embrace our own failure before God and also embrace the unbelievable grace that he's given us, I think that's the foundation for us than leaning into the failures of our kids and saying, they're going to fail. They're going to fail us. They're going to fail themselves. They're going to fail God. Um, but realizing like his grace is sufficient and there can be so much learned from those failures. If we let them fail with us and in front of us and give them a place to say, okay, yeah, that wasn't great. I love you no matter what we got to change this. This has got to be different next time. And I'm going to be long, I'm going to walk alongside you in how we do it. Mm-hmm. You know, that gives them the freedom to not hide their failure and go to something else to assuage their failure, not to medicate against their failure, which there's plenty of things out there to help them medicate against failure. Oh, that aren't good for them. But if we let them fail safely in front of us and with us and us to come alongside them to say, you know what? I blew that too. Or I understand. Let's pray about it. Let's do it. I think that sets them up to really not only just be successful, but I think to embrace the grace of Christ. I mean, we can't receive grace if we don't understand that we need a savior. Exactly. And we got to first realize we got to be rescued before we go to the rescuer. So if we do everything for them, or if we don't allow them to fail, or if we say failure is horrible, then they're never going to realize like they need a savior. And if they do, they're like, thank God there is one. And I can fully receive that. That's the beauty of the gospel. It, is. it, it is. allows you to enjoy this life now yep. a lot more, Fully too. agree. Absolutely. Um, so, well, thanks for the time. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Great and, to be uh, here. Enjoy being back in Texas for a little while. I know. I am. It's great. Uh, <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for listening to The Rooted Podcast, where we hope to communicate the truths of the gospel and apply those truths to youth ministry. We would love for you to check out our website, where we post articles daily geared towards both youth ministers and parents. You will also find more information about our conferences, regional events, and more at www.rootedministry.com.